And Wes and I thought it would be a big opportunity for us to gather and talk about something that would be encouraging. Right now I'm in the process of writing a book on heaven. Yeah. So we talked about the benefits of talking through some of that material. So welcome. We'll be doing this for about half an hour. Maybe next week we might have some more time. Our plans next week are to do this kind of live stream like we do Sunday morning and talk through same kind of format, um, you interviewing me and me talking about heaven, but also people being able to kind of ask questions uh, and we'll try to answer them in real time. So we're looking forward to that. Absolutely. And like Andy mentioned, we'll have more information to follow about exactly how you can get those questions into us, but we do look forward to discussing this topic that particularly right now seemed like yeah. a relevant one for us to uh, spend time meditating and reflecting on together. So yeah, our desire really is to feed uh, each one of you as we feed ourselves on Christian hope. We want to be filled with hope. We want to have an undying confidence based on the Word of God that the future is bright. And we want to give non-Christians who watch the way we walk through trials like this COVID-19 uh, struggle that we're all going through, uh, how we walk through it with such an uh, optimism, they might say, or with such a sunny disposition or positivity. We would call it hope. And they might actually ask us to give a reason for the hope that we have. But tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to go right through the issue of heaven. And we're going to talk about this over the next number of weeks and be able to discuss scripturally features of, of heaven that the Lord has been unfolding for me over the last really five years. Well, that's great, Andy. Let me go ahead and we'll just uh, dive in, jump mm -hmm. into the questions here. So why is it so important for Christians to think daily about our heavenly future? And how does Colossians 3, 1 through 4 command us to do that? Yeah, I think I just hinted at one a moment ago. Um, Non-Christians are, it says in Ephesians 2, without hope and without God in the world. And so we are those that have, uh, have been given a hope in Christ. Jesus said to us as his disciples, you are the light of the world. And so a lot of that is just to be able to shine the light of hope in the midst of a dark age. And that's especially true now during this coronavirus crisis as things seem very dark and bleak to many mm. and they wonder what the future looks like and for us to say we really believe with all our our hearts that the future is is unspeakably bright so to be filled with hope but also Colossians 3 1 through 4 says that we should as Christians set our hearts on things above where Christ is seated and set our minds on things above not on earthly things for we died and our life is hidden with Christ and when Christ who is our life appears that's the second coming, bringing in our heavenly lives, then we also appear with him in glory. So summing up, as I look at Colossians 3, 1 through 4, I think that scripture commands us to set our hearts on things above and things to come. Mm. Also things that are invisible, things that we cannot see. So our desire is to meditate on heaven because we're commanded to do, I think, in Colossians 3, because it fills us with hope mm. and because it's just so delightful to the soul. The future really is bright. And there's so many details that we can learn from Scripture as we meditate on our heavenly lives. Well, Andy, this is also just a, a popular topic, I think, for mm -hmm. people to consider. What misconceptions do many Christians have about heaven? Oh, there's so many of them. A number of years ago, Randy Alcorn wrote a book on heaven, and he wrote it uh, just in the face of a surprising uh, indication he had from pastors even, other Christians, that to some degree they were dreading heaven. Mm. And why is that? Because they picture it wrongly. They picture it as a very static place in which we will be doing the same thing forever and ever and ever. They even go beyond that to picture sitting on a fluffy cloud in a white robe with a golden harp singing the same song forever and ever. 
one pastor Alcorn interviewed said, I'm actually dreading heaven. <laughs> and so I, I can imagine that how distressing that would be to our Heavenly Father who wants us to be so filled with heavenly hope. And so he wrote that book, and I think it's a very helpful resource. I would commend it. But there are other books that are not so helpful. I was at uh, Barnes & Noble recently in the Christian area, and because I'm writing a book on heaven, I was zeroing in on uh, a good number of books on heaven. They're actually quite popular. And all of the books that were on the shelf in Barnes & Noble, all of them had to do with, with near-death experiences mm -hmm. as a source of information about our future heavenly life. And I think that's very dangerous. There's no scriptural warrant for it. I do believe that these people, some of them are genuine Christians, have real experiences, very vivid, like a vivid dream. And though we do believe that God can speak through visions and dreams, and we don't want to discount that entirely, we have no scriptural warrant to be going around the country interviewing people that had near-death experiences writing down very carefully what those experiences were, and then making the leap at that point to accepting those like we would a passage of Scripture as a source of information about heaven. Now that's invalid. And yet one of these books, uh, being published by a very good publisher, has sold over half a million copies and is on the New York Times bestseller list. So I think that's dangerous. We need to get our information about heaven from Scripture. Andy, you used a phrase a moment ago, uh, scriptural warrant. Mm -hmm. Why is the Romans 4-3 test, you know, what does the scripture say, so vital when it comes to our conceptions of heaven? Yeah, we talk about that all the time on staff. Mm -hmm. We go back to that touchstone again and again. Romans 4-3, Paul's there talking about justification by faith alone and Abraham's experience and David's experience in Romans 4, so that's the context there, but it's a universally applicable question. What does the scripture say? Or as Jesus frequently would say to uh, even his, his opponents, his enemies, have you never read mm. uh, what it says in the scripture? Or you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. I don't believe we have any warrant at all to get any information or have any conceptions about our heavenly life apart from Scripture, plus, I want to add, logical deductions from Scripture. Putting two and two together, making four theologically. That's what theologians do. Hmm. So we don't have to have an overt scriptural assertion, but we build theology by right conclusions from sound exegesis and put it together, like the doctrine of the Trinity. There's no one Trinitarian verse, but there's a, a bunch of, of assertions that scriptures make that you weave together into solid theology of the Trinity. So it is with heaven. So whatever the scripture asserts about heaven, I'm going to take that in, mm. and then logical deductions from it, but nothing else. We're not looking for near-death experiences. We're not having you know, our own ideas, our own conceptions of what heaven will be like. We're trying to just go from scripture ultimately. That's good. So we've talked about misconceptions that people can have. We've talked about scriptural assertions. What's the main way we should think about heaven as Christians? That's a vital question. And I think it's the main way we should think about everything to do with life, mm -hmm. our present lives too. Everything, all of life, all of creation, and the future world that is coming has to do ultimately with the glory of God. God created all things in heaven and earth, under the earth, all the creatures that he made both spiritual creatures, physical creatures, everything he made for his own glory. So it's vital for us as Christians, so we've heard that so many times, that I'm created for the glory of God, that we have been redeemed for the praise of his glory, uh, that everything has to do with God's glory. 
to try to understand what that means. And so for me, heaven is all about God's glory. It's a world in which we will be metaphorically swimming in a sea of glory. So that's like a metaphor, an image, but we're just going to be walking along the streets of the New Jerusalem surrounded by the, the brilliance, the light of the glory of God. Revelation 21 and 22 says it. Revelation 21 openly says, concerning the new Jerusalem, the, the city has no need for the light of the sun or the moon or the light of a lamp to shine, for the glory of God will give it light. Mm. And the lamb, Jesus, will be its lamp. And so Jesus, we are told in, in Hebrews, is the radiance of God's glory. And so when we see Christ Jesus, we have seen the glory of the Father. So in some sense, Heaven is all about a fuller experience of the glory of God than anything we ever had here on earth. Now, what is the glory of God? That's very important for us to understand. I believe that the glory of God is the radiant display of the attributes of God. Hmm. So I like radiant because sometimes glory is like a bright shining light. When the angel announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds outside Bethlehem, the glory of the Lord shone around. It's a, an actual light. When Jesus was transfigured, before Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, he became brilliant. He was bright. Moses' face shone with a light that was so bright that people had to cover it with a veil. Mm. So there's an actual physical light so that we don't need sun, moon, or lamp in heaven. But then there's a different kind of glory that Jesus talks about when he was lifted up on the cross and he glorified God. And also at, at a much lower level, it speaks of um, Peter, the death by which he would glorify God. Mm. And so there is a glory that comes from putting God on display in this world, sometimes a radiant light, but his nature. So what are the attributes of God? That's a very good question theologically. It has to do with adjectives or descriptions answering the question, what kind of God do we worship? Or what kind of God is the God of the Bible? So God himself will give us a list of attributes such as the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. So that's a list of attributes. But the Bible has far more than that. So we would talk about God's uh, self-existence. He is the God who does not need to be created. Um, he is the living. He is, he is life. He is uh, immortal. That means transcendent, above time. Uh, he sees the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. He's above time. He's timeless, eternal. He is immense, uh, which it's hard to differentiate that between God's omnipresence. God fills heaven and earth. He is equally everywhere at once and fills the immensity of the universe, the immensity of God. His, the, the omnis, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. Uh, we just talked about omnipresent, but omnipotent, anything that God can, anything that, can, that power can do, God can do. Hmm. And omniscient, there, there is nothing that God does not know. Uh, so those are the attributes of God. Now, in heaven, we'll be, we'll be learning those attributes. Now, let me tell you something about a misconception about heaven that's so important that Randy Alcorn's book really helped me get over. And it has to do with that, that vision, you remember, we are talking about of being in heaven and doing the same thing forever and ever. Sure. That's a static view of heaven. I mm. believe in a dynamic heaven. I believe in a heaven in which things are unfolding, things are, are developing especially our knowledge of God, that we will have a developing knowledge of God in heaven. Hmm. We will have no misconceptions, no idolatries. That will all be done. Everything we will know about God will be true, yeah. but we will never be omniscient. Hmm. Someone once said about God's omniscience, 
has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? <laughs> so what I get out of that is God never has a new thought. Nothing ever pops into God's mind. He already had it, wow. or he wasn't omniscient before that. But there will be things that will pop into our minds. We will learn new things about God in heaven. And so for me, heaven is about a fuller experience and an understanding of the glory of God. Hmm. And it seems like you've just hinted at this next question that I'd love to ask because you've mentioned other books and we know there's a lot of resources out there on sure. heaven, right? Yeah. Some of them more helpful than others. But what is the premise of your book on heaven? All right, so you know it's important for an author to write, write about something that needs to be written about. There's no point in me just writing a book that's already, already been written. And so I want to write about something that the Lord has shown me to some degree independent of other authors. Mm. And uh, that has been uh, this book on heavenly memories or the eternally glorious backward look is another way to look at it. Um, and here's how it, how it works. That I believe in heaven, we will have an experience of the glory of God. Just talked about that a moment ago. But I'm breaking up in my mind in, in three ways. Past, God's past glory, God's present glory, and God's future glory. I mean in heaven. So don't think of God's future glory now. I mean, let's say we're, we're in the New Jerusalem now. The old, old world is gone. The old order of things has passed away. Everything has been made new. So we're in the New Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth. We are new. We're in our resurrection bodies. Okay, when you're there, there'll be a past glory that we'll study, present glory that we'll experience and learn, and a future glory. Hmm. Now, let's take, take them in reverse order. Let's, let's take the future glory. I don't know any, almost anything about that. The Bible says very, very little. And one of the things about my book, I don't want to speculate. Mm. So I think speculation is harmful. But I'll say this. What I mean by future heavenly glory, even when we're in heaven, is things will happen. There'll be a, a future set of events. We will be in resurrection bodies, having resurrected minds. It cannot be we will then, with all that incredible capability, have nothing to do. Just sit there and strum a harp. It's like, I can... <laughs> do more than this, Lord, if you, if you give me a chance, you know. Uh, but that would be all of us. So in, in different levels, uh, we will have different responsibilities. And there are scriptures that hint at that. Hmm. You know, uh, the parable of the Minas, uh, in which he is given charge of 10 cities. Uh, you get the sense that the New Jerusalem may just be the capital city of God's worldwide empire, and there'll be other cities as well, and we'll have regular recourse to go to the capital city. It's just different ways. I don't know. A lot of that's speculative, and so I don't say much about it in my book. I just mention it. The present glory when we're in heaven, for us, it's future now, but when we're there, that will be what we will be able to see and experience right there. Hmm. So let's talk about the central glory there is in heaven, God himself. We will at last be able to see the face of God. The very thing that Moses asked for and yep. could not see because he would not survive it. And I think it's why Paul said, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Mm. We will be able to look at God in the face and not die. We will be able to see his glory and we'll be able to handle that brilliance, the brightness. God dwells in unapproachable light. We'll be able to see him and Christ. I don't know how we see the Father as over against the Son or how that works or the Spirit, but we will, we will see God in the face. Revelation 22 says that his servants will see him. We'll see his face. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That's the greatest. There is nothing better than that. But beyond that, we'll be able to see the glory of the place that he's made. The new Jerusalem will be a glorious city described in Revelation 21 and 22. A radiant, beautiful place with streets of transparent gold, which I don't even understand what that is. <laughs> and then foundation stones, the different yeah. color stones, the pearly gates, gates made of a single pearl. Mm. Not like lots of pearls in the gate, like a pearl that's the gate. 
Wow, I don't even know how to conceive a, of that. It's a big pearl. That's a big That's pearl. A big Must pearl. have been a big oyster, too. I don't <laughs> want to wonder about that. But uh, just an amazing scene. And then mm. the, the throne of God in the center of the city, the river of water of life flowing down, the, the tree of life on each side of the, of the river. Can't really picture that very well. But, you know, and these might be symbolic things, but as I preach through Revelation, I also say that it's best to keep them as literal as possible in our minds. Mm -hmm. Because once we say it's all symbolic, then we don't really know how to conceive of it. So the present glory, and then the glory of the new earth, the new heavens and new earth, to be able to explore the resurrected world, which I think wow. Randy Alcorn's made a good case saying it's basically, it is this world, but with no curse, perfected. Mm -hmm. So not some weird sci-fi purple and green-skied planet that, that, I mean, just, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of sci-fi and I'm not talking about, I think that's, it's this world and there are scriptural indications hmm. based on the promises made to Abraham that he never, he never got the promised land, wow. that he will give him this earth but resurrected. So we'll be able to explore that and how beautiful that will be, hmm. how beautiful. So all of that and then brothers and sisters in Christ, the friendships we will have perfected, the fellowship horizontally. And a lot of my book is about that horizontal look at other brothers and sisters um, and what they did in their lives. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, but just the, the present glory. Now the past glory is what my book's about. And that's that backward look. Mm. Being able to see what God did in redemptive history to rescue a multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe, language, people, and nation and bring them to that heavenly world to be able to hear those stories and see the glory of God in saving this one and this one and this one, and that each one would get their moment of focus and we be able to learn what God did. People we never knew, they lived in a different century than mm. us, but to be able to see what they did, we're gonna look back and the more I've meditated on that, it has unfolded into so many different subtopics of what we would look back to see. That's what the book's about. Wow. So how would you then support that premise from Scripture? We mentioned before the Romans test. How would, how would we support well, this premise from Scripture? Actually, I had a dream about this, and that's how I, I knew that I'm just <laughs> oh my goodness, come on. <laughs> all right, all right, valid question. From how do I support this from Scripture? Well, I actually have at least 15 scriptural proofs that we will remember in heaven our earthly lives. Mm. Um, and there are probably more. Once you start seeing them, you start to realize how many there are. Let's, let's keep it simple. Uh, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So in heaven, we'll remember Jesus' earthly words. So we'll start there. But then once you acknowledge that we'll remember Jesus' earthly words, we'll think of all the things that he said mm. that we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let's take a simple example of, I believe it was Mary that anointed him with that year's worth of wages, that perfume that filled the whole house with aroma. And he said, I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Well, there I've just fulfilled Jesus' prophecy. I've recounted the story of Mary's anointing. Why would we remember throughout every era of redemptive history, every area of church history, what Mary did in anointing Jesus, but then get to heaven and have no memory of it at all, hmm. forgotten forever. But if, Ma if Mary's anointing of Jesus gets remembered, then why wouldn't every act of service done by every brother and sister in Christ be remembered as well? Hmm. That brings us over into the doctrine of rewards. The Bible talks a lot about rewards. And rewards are always tied to earthly events, hmm. like take being persecuted for the name of Christ. So that's Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, 
falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That is filled with evidence of my premise. Hmm. All right? The prophets in heaven are rewarded and remembered for their sufferings. So also will anybody who's persecuted for Jesus' namesake. All the martyrs during the Roman era will be remembered that they gave their lives for the gospel in the Roman era. Or the martyrs in the communist era, behind the Iron Curtain, or in China, different places, or martyrs in Muslim countries. There have been more martyrs, or more martyrs in the 20th century than all the other 19 combined. And I think the overwhelming majority of Christian martyrs haven't even, uh, haven't, haven't perhaps even been born yet. I don't know about the future, but they haven't died yet. There's a, a massive martyrdom that's going to come in in the future. And so we're going to remember. So rewards point to this. Or again, Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 8, I tell you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. All right, so... Let's imagine we go totally the other way and say, no, 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 there's not going to be any memory of our earthly lives. None. All right. I want you to feel, I want you to swim in how weird that would be. All right. So a, a number of years ago, I got rid of, a, a, of an electronic device, an Apple device, and they taught me on, online or in the Internet how to wipe it clean of any evidence that I'd ever been on it or any of my, um, what do you say, my... Uh, uh, financial information or my emails or any of that. Just all that personal data. All the personal data. Wipe it. And that's a good thing to do. Um, imagine that happened to us. Hmm. Well, I have a simple question. Who are you? Who am I? Yeah. We get to heaven. We have no sin, no sin nature, but we have no memory. Like heavenly amnesia. Heavenly amne amnesia. So then we sit at the table with Abraham, but only God knows who he was. We'd even have to tell him what his name was. What's your name? I have no idea. Well, you are Abraham, okay? And you are Wes. So, Wes, you get to have your big evening sitting with Father Abraham, but you don't know that he's Father Abraham. You don't know anything about him. Hi, I'm Abraham. I'm Wes. Let's eat. That's just weird. <laughs> that cannot be. We're going to remember Abraham as the Abraham we read about in the Bible. We're going we're gonna to be able to talk to King David, who slew Goliath, with that sling, we'll be able to talk to him about the things he went through. Just so much scriptural evidence, and I have many, many other verses, and we'll go through that in future weeks. Mm. Well, what are some main objections people might have to this idea of heavenly memories of yeah. our earthly lives? What would people say in opposition to that? Sure. Well, uh, there are three categories in particular, I think more than anything that people look at when they say, well, wait a minute now. Mm. I thought we were going to be free from all that. I thought we were not going to remember the past. So I would, I would say, first of all, let's just start with scriptural objections. You know, Isaiah 65 says, Behold, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. So that seems to just totally destroy my book. It's like, all right, don't write it. <laughs> Actually, my daughter said that to me. He's like, Dad, doesn't that kind of blow up your book? Um, but, it, you know, here's the thing. I've already made many scriptural evidences that we will remember the great deeds of God in the past. God actually does use similar language about the Exodus, saying you, you're not going to remember the Exodus when you see what I'll do in restoring after the exiles. Hmm. So what he's saying is, and I think ultimately the exile restoration is a picture of our future salvation in Christ. The future salvation, the future, the, the final great Exodus that Jesus works is so much greater than the Exodus that Moses worked. 
that it can drive that exodus out of mind. It's a comparison that, that this is so much greater than that that we won't even have cause to remember the past. I think actually there's a psalm in which the, the bride of the, of, the, of the king is told, forget your father's house, forget all of your family, come into my house. And it's like he doesn't want her to forget her family. What he's saying is that your new life is going to be so much greater and better than anything you've ever experienced before. Mm. I think Pharaoh said the same thing to Jacob. Leave all your stuff in Palestine. You're going to have the best of the land. Wow. Well, they brought all their stuff. Mm. And I think that Pharaoh wasn't angry or upset. So what I would say is that the verses that say we're not going to remember the past are really just the, the new is so much greater than the old. Also, God says he will forgive our, wick, our wickedness and remember our sins no more. What that means is not that God is no longer omniscient. He's like, I have no idea what you did. It's that relationally we are so completely forgiven, it, it, there's no disadvantage. So let me get mm. to the three things that people object. First of all, our sins. Are we going to remember our sins in heaven? I thought we were going to be forgiven. All right? And then our sufferings. Why would we want to go back through those things that broke our hearts? Mm. The burying of a, of a child. Mm. Just, you know, never really healed after that. I mean, could never stop thinking about that child with, uh, except with tears. Um, and then the damned, people mm -hmm. that we knew and loved in life, but now we know for sure they're not in heaven. Those three things. Will we remember our sins? Answer, yes. Perfectly. Will we remember our sufferings? Yes, we will. Absolutely. Will we remember the damned? We will. Mm -hmm. But here's a key verse. There'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. Memory, but no pain. Memory, but no shame. Memory, but no regrets. Just this is what happened in the tapestry of God's providence. And do you not see how glorious God is to have saved a sinner like me and to have brought us through, not just me, but all of my brothers and sisters, through so much sorrow and misery. And in reference to the damned, to see the wisdom and the justice of God in what he did. In Romans 9 says why God did all those things. We can get to that in future weeks. Mm -hmm. Perfect memory, but no pain. And, and there's, I have a lot more to say about each of those topics, but those are the objections that people raise. Sure. And with the time we have remaining, could you just give us an overview of some of the chapters where you address some of these topics, the premise, the objections, the okay. proofs? I don't remember them all. Like I said, there's, <laughs> there's lots of them. So I wrote out chapter titles. And uh, we're going to uh, begin by talking about how God um, is like, like earthly kings that love to show off the glories of their kingdoms. Hmm. Many earthly kings like to do this. Caesar liked to do this. Kublai Khan did it um, in, his, uh, in his capital city. Solomon did it with the Queen of the South. Hmm. Um, Xerxes did it for 180 days, put on the glory. God's going to do it, but not for 180 days, for all eternity. He's going to put his glories on display. So we're going to talk about that. I'm going to go through all of the biblical proofs. I want, I want you to understand how rooted in Scripture this is, that God loves us to remember his mighty deeds of the past. We're supposed to remember that now. Why forget it in heaven? Um, I'm going to talk about how God alone really knows the past, hmm. how human histories are flawed, how our memories sure. are flawed, how God will be able to say, remember that time when uh, Sarah denied laughing? Remember? said, I didn't laugh. God said, oh, yes, you <laughs> yes, did. You yeah. laughed. So that's it. God just knows the past. He's like, you'll be able to set us straight. You remember it this way? Didn't happen that way. This is how it happened. So God knows the past. We're going to talk about how we will be different in heaven, our resurrected bodies, hearts, minds, and how we need to be 
upfitted and, and ready to handle the weight of glory that he's going to pour into us in heaven. Mm -hmm. So just talking about the thought, theology of our resurrection. Now here's the most speculative part of my book. But I'm going to argue that heaven is about seeing, not merely hearing. Okay. That right now we're all about faith that comes from hearing. But someday we are going to see face to face. Now we mm -hmm. see through a glass darkly, then we will see face to face. Or as Job said, I've heard of you with, the, with my ears, but now my eyes have seen you. Mm -hmm. So heaven's about not just hearing, but seeing. So not just campfire testimonies. Hey, tell me how you got saved. And we just all listen. Oh, that's wonderful. And then the next person comes and tells their story. What if God actually shows us visions of the past? Mm -hmm like he did with the Apostle John showing him visions of the future from the island of Patmos. Why not turn the thing around and say, let me show you what the Red Sea crossing was like. All right? wow. Let me show you the courage of the martyrs or Adoniram and, and Nancy Judson when they brought so many Burmese to Christ. Let me, let's watch it and see. Mm -hmm. And it would be better, better than virtual reality, so powerful, it would be like, is this actually happening? It's amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, Paul said, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God does. Uh, we're going to talk about Judgment Day and how difficult that will be and uh, all of the things that will come. But then he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes and there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, and pain. We have a lot more things to come, uh, more than I can discuss. Going through history, going through providence, God's orchestration of history and how he sovereignly ruled over all those things. Exciting studies in weeks to come. Well, we're looking forward to that, and again, this format will be designed in weeks to come where there'll be hopefully a more interactive element where we'll be able to answer your questions. These have been questions that I've had that Andy's uh, mm -hmm. kind of helped us think through as, as he's reflected on these things, and we're eager to hear from you, questions you have about heaven, about these concepts. Mm -hmm. uh, but most of all, we just want to take this time and make the best use of these days to be reflecting on our hope, our future heavenly home, uh, as we face trials of various kinds in this life, knowing that we have a sure hope in the home that Christ has secured for us. So Andy, would you pray for us? Yeah. Pray for those who are watching with us this evening as, yeah. we, uh, as we end our time together. Father, it's a challenging time for not just us, but people around the world. We need to be filled with scriptural hope. Mm -hmm. I pray that in the weeks to come, as we go through this exciting material, that we would be more and more hope-filled and be able to give hope to the hopeless that live around us in our community to be able to point to the hope of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.